Uh, my name's Hans. I get to serve here as one of the pastors, and it's a joy to be with you this morning, continuing on in the Gospel of John. We're at the about a third of the way through the Gospel. Not quite there, but we're about a third of the way through. And John 6 actually is the portion that carries us up until Easter. And John 6 really is all about the feeding of the 5,000 and the misunderstanding surrounding the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus walks on the water, but it's like a miracle within a miracle within a miracle where, where he's walking on the water and they get to the shore and they didn't understand what was going on. You learned that from Mark. And so we're going to spend the next <clears throat> three weeks or so, excuse me, <clears throat> all in this idea of Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000. But to start it off, I, uh, I want to share something that happened a couple of weeks ago in me. I've never done this. So a, a few weeks ago, I taught 7th graders for a week. And I never taught 7th graders for a week. I was subbing in the 7th grade hermeneutics class at my boys' school. And if you know me well, you'll know that one of my favorite epistles is James. <clears throat> so James, I, I've loved James since I, you like... I can, I mean, honestly, when, like, Courtney and I were, like, discussing James together, you might think that we have this, like, whole Bible study relationship. We really don't. Um, I think I was somehow using the book of James to, to flirt with her. Uh, <clears throat> so, <clears throat> I just have good memories of James. Uh, but it really is one of my favorite books. And so, we went through the book of James together with seventh graders. So you know, James is five chapters, and so you kind of have an intro day, and then I was all the following week, so five, you know, chapter do a chapter a day, and you discuss aspects of the book of James. Well, when we got to chapter two, if you know chapter two, there's really two big pieces of chapter two, which is faith and works and favoritism in reverse order. Uh, so favoritism is always an interesting conversation for me, especially with seventh graders, because they're not going to hold back on popularity and favoritism and the way people pursue pe- you know, others based upon how they look or based upon the cars their parents drive or the place that they live or their athletic prowess, all the, re- all the, all the ways people try and buddy up with other people. And it's interesting because it was very, very easy for seventh graders to admit all the ways that they find popularity exists in a school. It's probably similar for you to, to realize what, what are the things that we look at. I mean, it's the same. We, we want, like, you know, we look at the house you live in. We look at the car you drive, the job you have, the vacations you go on. All of that kind of makes you who you are. And, uh, and so we, we do similar things as adults, but, but kids really feel it. They, they feel this, like, inside, outside. How do I fit in? What do I do? Um, I remember one time in middle school, I got an Ocean Pacific shirt, right? Like, like I don't even know if that brand is still around, right? If it is, it's probably sold at Target, uh, where Mossimo is too, which had cool blurry shirts. But um, I remember, like, getting that shirt and thinking for a while, like, finally, finally, I, I have a good shirt. And I had one time, like, a sail rack Tommy Hilfiger shirt. And, you know, with, like, you know, the, the, the little signs down here, and it feels really cool when it's down here, like, midway down your, your torso. It felt neat. And I was like, this is, I've arrived. Ocean Pacific t-shirt, Tommy Hilfiger button-up, like, I'm, I'm, I'm there. And, and, and I, I maybe one time bought, like, a quarter ounce of, of, of Tommy Hilfiger cologne, which was, you know, it, 
at like the sale rack for four dollars or whatever it was. But like this was this was it, and I was gonna like I'll fill it with water. Jesus gonna make you know, Jesus take the wheel, make it bigger. But like whatever, um, all these things I was trying to do as a middle schooler to fit in, to 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 be liked, to to get people to like me. And all the things that I thought mattered, and honestly, if I'm honest, some of the things I still think matter, some of the things I still look at and still want, you know, like that's still a part of me. Our world does a terrible job at determining what really matters. And we do a terrible job at determining what really matters. I mean, honestly, like we're bad judges of character. We, 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 We want to be liked. We want to be popular. We want to... We want to be the one people want to hang out with and spend time with and they talk about. We want to get tagged in Instagram posts and we want people to just think we're great. And, you know, and then we can be like, oh, you know, we can humble brag about it all we want. But that's, that's a big part of, of just the ugly side of how we operate. We want people to pursue us for prestige and we want to be seen with popular people. That's why no one's taking their picture with me after a service. But if somebody famous were here, they're like, can I get a picture? Can I get a picture? Like all the things we want to do, we want to be just next to them. And it's funny because, honestly, that same filter that, that people use, even now, if you're in fourth grade or seventh grade or eighth grade or 30th grade, whatever grade you would be in if you just kept going, all those same filters that we, we recognize get applied to Jesus. And when Jesus demonstrates himself as somebody who has power or authority or, or can really honestly just do interesting things, people find themselves attracted to him and want to be with him or want to be near him. And yet, that's an incredibly superficial reason for wanting to be near Jesus. And the same thing happens with churches. We've already mentioned this. We'll say it week, week after week after week where, where people want to go to the church that's popular or has the popular pastor, or has the good ministries, or the good t-shirts, uh, where he's like, man, this t-shirt's baller, like, where are the Genesis t-shirts? Like, well, they're the kids' ministry t-shirts, and they're like, you know, cheaper than a Hilfiger quarter-ounce cologne. <laughs> and so we want to have the church where we can, you know, retweet the stuff they're doing, and talk about it, and go, oh yeah, look at, look at what we did, look how we're serving, look at what we care about. And I just have to say, that's a real, for all of us, a really earthly way of considering life in Christ. It's, and, 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 and honestly, rather meaningless. Rather meaningless. And yet that's still what we want. And we see that today. We see that today. That people want to be beside Jesus because of what he does in an earthly sense. And that's going to happen all throughout John chapter 6, where they become enamored with him because of his ministry and his healing and his multiplication of food. And they, 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 they see sort of like half-truths about him. Like they, they recognize he's the prophet that's come into the world, but they don't recognize him as Savior. And we see John showing this all throughout the gospel. If you've been with us at all, you see this almost every week where there's interest in Jesus, but... It's at a superficial level. It's because he's doing something. And he, because he's popular. And everyone's interested in him. And John chapter 6 really is, if we're talking about earthly zenith, 
This is like the, the earthly, worldly zenith of Christ's ministry, where thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are interested in what he's doing. But then as you get to the end of John chapter 6, people are piecing out. They're going, never mind. You're not the guy we thought you were. You're not doing the things we want you to do. You're not. This is not it. So, what we see today in these first 15 verses of a rather well-known miracle, we're going to see the way people respond to Jesus and what they're missing about him. Do they want a savior or an earthly king? They really want an earthly king. They want a kingdom without a cross. A savior without a sacrifice. However you want to alliterate it. They, that's what they want. The miracle that is recorded in all gospels. The feeding of the 5,000. The first 15 verses contain the miracle itself. And then from that, this little part where, where Jesus gets away from them. Because he doesn't want from them what they want to give him. He doesn't want the status they want to give him. He doesn't, doesn't want to be their king. So we're going to go through this. And really, rather than just tear it down, um, because, because narrative's a little different to teach than like an epistle all the way through where it's just thing upon thing. We're going to look at the crowd response and the disciple response. We're going to do this for a couple of weeks. What are the crowds doing? What are the disciples doing? And, and what, you, what you really do see is that they're both missing it. They're both missing it. The crowds are missing it in one way, and the disciples are missing it in another who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And, 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 and we recognize that because even after this, this moves into the, Jesus walking on water. And they don't understand what's going on with Jesus walking on water. And then they get to shore and all the crowds are like, where would Jesus go? we got to find Jesus. He, you know, give us more stuff. And we'll see that again and again and again. So the response of the crowds before the miracle and after and the response of the disciples to Jesus' testing. He actually says he did this to test him. Now the crowds, as we begin this spot, and Jesus has now left his rebuke of the religious leaders who only wanted, you know, they, like they were searching the scriptures, but you think they find life, but you're missing me. All the ways are missing him. Now we move to the crowds and the disciples. And the crowds really just are demonstrated as excited to see great works. The reason the crowds came to Jesus... Verse 2, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They're at the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias. There's multiple names for it. That's why the, John's helping you understand what's going on. So we're north now, north of Jerusalem. We're going to see ministry going on in the north part of Israel for a while now. And, and what we have is Jesus there, Sea of Galilee. And people are now wanting to see him and follow him and are interested in him because of the signs we're doing. Now, last week, if you weren't with us, here's just a bit of a refresher about signs. There's a sign, and the sign is to not, you don't stare at the sign, it's to show you who Jesus is. And so those who are looking for the Messiah, the Savior, with the right heart, and there are only a few that we see in the Gospels early on who have that. We're talking about Simeon and Anna from the tribe of Asher. They're both in the Gospel of Luke. And they're both looking for the Messiah. They're not looking just for an earthly king. But there aren't a lot of people who are looking for the Messiah. They're looking for power. 
The sign is supposed to show you the Savior, but people just get enamored with the sign. We talked about the street magician, and you know, how, how did you do that? Show me how you did that. It's funny because the same thing happens in the book of Acts. As ministry is going on, there's, the apostles are now doing signs, and people are like, in Samaria, are like, wait a minute, I want that power. I want to be able to do the thing you're doing. I want to have that kind of, how do I get that power? So people are following Jesus because he's doing signs on the sick. He is, at that point in time, the greatest show on earth. And they're interested in being at the show. But it really, for them, does just kind of turn into a circus. Now, it is reasonable to be drawn to things that are spectacular. If, if, if you heard that down the road somewhere, there was a person, and that person was literally healing the sick. I'd want to go check it out. I mean, like, I'd, really? You know, or somebody came back and was like, I promise I came to that thing with cancer, and I left it, and I don't have it. I was wheeled there because I can't walk and I'm walking back. That kind of stuff where there is no other explanation for what is going on. So it is totally reasonable to want to be around Jesus because of that. But they really just seem to want only that. Do the sign, do the sign, do the sign, do the sign. Where, where Jesus becomes the genie that gives you what you want. And so when you, when you need something, and it, honestly, don't some of us treat God that way? We go to God when there's a need. Could you please help me here? Could you please fix this thing? Could you please go? Yeah, like we, we often, in our own hearts, we might treat God the same way, where he really is just there to dispense the thing that we need at the moment, to give us the thing that we need. And so, so we don't treat Jesus as Savior and Lord. We treat him as genie and, and grandpa who gives us things when we're interested, and then we go live our lives. However, they're still missing him, and John keeps saying why they're coming, and he's been doing this since chapter 2. Really, he hints at it in chapter 1, but he starts to just, he keeps talking about it, and they're coming because of the signs, coming because of the signs. I mean, remember the healing of the official son? Unless you see signs, right? Like no, Everyone wants to see Jesus do things, and they're interested in Jesus because of signs. Now there's a crowd because there's a crowd. I mean, there really are thousands. It says there's 5,000 men. There could be 10,000, 15,000. Some have estimated as many as 20,000 people around Jesus at this time. And they're excited about what he's doing. Now, for a moment, I know we're going to have to talk about the, 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 the feeding, but the crowds don't learn anything through the feeding. And you see that because if you look at verse 15, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force, Jesus withdrew again. They want to make him king. Now, they do recognize in verse 14 this idea of He's a prophet. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Remember this was asked about John the Baptist. Are you the prophet? That's from Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy 18, 15, we read, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so they look and they see Jesus and go, oh, this is the prophet. This is the prophet. But they still don't 
they still don't confess him as Savior, Messiah. They just, they're recognizing things about him. They're orbiting some things that are true about him. But what do they do? They go, he's the prophet. Let's take him by force and make him king, which is not the way you treat the Lord God. But that's what they want to do. They want to take him and set him up as their king. Why would they want to do that? Well, John gives us that clue that we're at another Passover event. John, John kind of times some of his, his gospel narrative or gives you timing through talking about the Passovers. And the Passover would create religious fervor. It would create enthusiasm. And maybe looking for the Messiah. It would create an expectation. And so here we are at the Passover, and there's a guy doing signs, and we're looking for a prophet. This seems like the guy, so let's set him up as the king. Let's set him up. Which misses that he is the savior of the world. This is how many people treat Jesus, isn't it? Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus was a kind person. I think that Jesus was on this world historically, but I don't think that he was God. And so there's this recognition that Jesus was someone, but he was less than how Scripture reveals him to be. A powerful person, yes. A good person, yes. A kind person, yes. A loving person, absolutely. But we, I, can't, I, I can't say he's the only way. I can't say that he is the Savior of the world. Why? Well... What's that do? That has implications for you. That has implications for you. And so we create this safe version where he can be cool things. And at the same time, he isn't savior of the world. So they recognize him as the prophet. They want to set him up as king. But I want to give a warning here before we continue and see the disciples in the miracle itself. I want to give a warning here about the crowd or mob-like mentality that we can have when it comes to Jesus. Is that if we seek Jesus for popularity and because he is maybe culturally okay to pursue, then when he is no longer popular, you're no longer around. When he can't get you what you want, you're no longer around. And this is the danger. There are many studies you can find, you can read, you can discuss, you can find commentary on them. All these studies about why are so many people leaving the church. You ever see these? Shows up maybe in some feed or somebody shares it on social media. Why are so many people leaving the church? Books about the rise of the nuns and all these people who are not religiously affiliated in any way. And what's happening here? And who is this? And why is this happening? And everyone has their reasons. Oh, well, if, you know, uh, dads were just better dads and moms are better moms and churches are better churches and disciples are better disciples, then that wouldn't happen. And I, like, I'm like, okay, yeah, it's, it's very easy to find simple reasons why incredibly complex things happen. Yeah, sure. Like it, that, that's, we, can, we can do that all day. But one of the big things I, I, it seems to be is that 
being a Christian, even though it's still rather comfortable, is becoming less popular. I mean, you, we, we, make, we make here every week exclusive claims about how people find life. The scriptures make exclusive claims about what marriage is. They make claims about what life is. They say things are right and things are wrong. It, it, it proclaims people's hearts as sinful and in need of repair, as, as broken and needing to be fixed, and that they can't do that themselves. In fact, they claim, we, we will say this all the time, and you will talk about it in your community groups or in your discipleship groups, your complete inability to be good enough to gain God's pleasure in any way. His, he was not satisfied with sinful people, even though he loves them. They are not sufficient in and of themselves. You can't save yourself. These things are said every week. Churches around the world say these kinds of things every week. And those kinds of claims that we hold on to are becoming less and less popular. And so, what happens? Well, the people who are never really that interested in the first place, just don't, they just stop coming. Because, well, I don't need to risk that. It's funny, I've seen this, this is anecdotal, but just go with me here for a second. I saw that we've seen the same thing with like, when COVID, like, like, like everybody I talk to, churches are like a third of the size that they were. Uh, like all, all my buddies, again, anecdotal. I'm sure you have more anecdotes of why this isn't the case. But like, like they're, they're like, yeah, we get, we're about a third of what we used to be. You know, we don't have the same people. But at the same time, those same people are saying this. But like we're still hitting budget and ministry participation is still going strong. And, pe- and I'm like, yeah. It's like, it's like what got burned away were all the people who didn't really care about being here. And it became incredibly convenient not to show up. And so they just kept not coming. Now, again, that's anecdote. That's anecdote. I get it. But, but you lose a third and your budget doesn't follow. In fact, many churches I know like, have had some of their best years in the past couple of years. I'm like, how do you have your best years with a third fewer people? Well, who's still around? Who's still around? The people who say, this is my Lord. And we get together. And these are my people. This is my family. And it's an ugly family and it's a funny family and they have weird pastors. But like, that's us. You notice I said pastors, Johnny, John, Rock, Matt. Yeah, yeah. We don't know who they're talking about. But it's probably you guys. Yeah. So what we see is the crowd mentality for Jesus. A popular guy doing popular things that people are interested in. But he's about to say some things in the coming weeks as we get to them where people go, never mind, not my Savior. Not my Savior. Because Jesus is not hiding who he is. I mean, we've seen multiple statements already about who, how do you find life? This is eternal life. This is what it means to have life. This is what it means to do the will of God. Those kinds of statements have been said already and will continue to be said. And they're all about accepting the Savior of the world, Jesus, the Son. 
That's what it's about. So there's a huge caution when it comes to wanting to be around religious people because they're popular. Because everyone will fall out of popularity. So let's go to the disciples. The disciples, I, I think we're, we're, we can relate to these guys. We can relate to these guys, but we have the same problem there. We're at the second Passover, and the disciples are still thinking in earthly dimensions. They're, they're still thinking about what's going on here. And let me explain this, right? So, so what we see is Jesus is there with his disciples in verse 3, okay? 6-3, Jesus is up on the mountain with his disciples, so it seems like he's trying to have a moment with them, which it's very hard to find a moment with his disciples, you'll find. And what happens is in verse 5 is that he sees a large crowd coming, and he, these people have probably been following Jesus around in some, for some amount of time, and so he wants to feed them. <clears throat> but look at what he says to Philip. To Philip, he says this in verse 5, where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? Now look at verse 6. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii, denarii, how you want to pronounce it, worth of bread. We'll just say, if your translation might say, eight months of wages, might say that. Eight months of wages would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now that's going to be important, that a little. Eight months of wages to get a little. Now, why does Jesus have this interaction with one of his disciples? Well, what's the test? What is the test that the disciple has in that moment where they are outmanned? What's the test? Do they recognize who he is and the power that he has? And how does Philip answer? We don't have enough money to buy all the food. We could buy out all the villages. And there would not be enough food here to give all the people here even a snack pack. We don't have enough. Now, the test then, well, that's, a, that's an F in the sense of like how the tests go. Because, because Philip, for those who see Jesus as Messiah, they can say, Lord, you know what to do. You know what to do. You can do this. But instead, instead, he's like, we don't have, I mean, even if we had eight months of, of wages, four months of wages, or we had all this money, right? It's just an astronomical number. Even if we had all of this, we could only give these people a little. What is he looking for? He's providing earthly solution to the challenge that Jesus put before him. And, and mind you, Jesus has been teaching his disciples. And his disciples have been beside him. He's ministering, instructing, healing. We could say it like this. They should have seen by now. But anybody who's walked with Jesus, it doesn't matter if it's been 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 40 years, 50 years. Don't you still often run to earthly solutions to solve problems? You're sitting there with your checkbook going, I'm not sure how we're going to make it to the end of the month. I do this all the time. I'm not, I'm not sure how this is going to work. 
I can't, I can't do the math. I can't do the math right. right? He just Phil pulls out his abacus and starts going through everything, going, there's no way we can do this. Judas, the guy who holds on to the money, is like, oh, yeah, we can totally pull it off, right? Because he's a liar. Now, we see Philip's test. Jesus knew what he was going to do. Philip didn't, still did not recognize him as the Lord who could do this. Andrew, and sorry, the reason he asked Philip is because Philip's from around there, right? So he's kind of like, hey, where's the, where's the cool shop to get food? Yeah, you know, that's, why, that's why he said it. Tell me, where, tell, me where, tell me where we do this. So that the answer isn't, I'm not from here, I don't know. Andrew, verses 8 and 9, Andrew has been sent into the crowd. We learned this from Mark. Andrew, hey, go, go and see what we can find. So Andrew's going one way, and Philip's answering a question. Andrew comes back, and he's like, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Answer, nothing. And yet, we, so here, here are these two numbers. It's going to take months of wages to give these people a snack. And then Andrew comes back, and he's like, five loaves and two fish. Let's go. It shows us just how, how wrong we are in our approach to how Jesus works, who Jesus is. Is that we're coming out going, okay, well, we, we either have a money problem or, or a food problem, but it's a resources thing. We have a resources issue. That's what it is. So if we had more money or we had more food, we could pull this off. Same thing. We do the same thing where we look for worldly solutions to solve real problems that we are outmatched for. And I I already talked about finances a little bit, but I tell you, just personally, this is always one for me. I mean, I have seen, I've been, I've been, I have, this is the crazy thing to think about when you're in ministry in this capacity like I am. Since 2009, what year is this? 2022? Since 2009, I have been provided for by the generosity of others. Since 2009, okay? So what is that? 12 and a half years? For 12 and a half years. Years. Longer than any of my children have been alive. I have been covered every day. Every day. Never skipped a meal unless by choice. Always had a place to sleep. Always had the support needed, the care given. And yet, you can get down to the end of the month and go, how is this, how are we going to pay for this? How are we going to do that? I'm not sure how it's going to work. I would need to make Twice as much in order to do. All all these guys, we go back into math. We go back into math. Rather than recognize Jesus and go, you have always, you have always provided. You have covered every need. And when I've been selfish, you've corrected me. And you haven't just covered like the, the, the beans and rice needs even. 
Like, you've, you've covered abundantly. You've, co- you've been sure we have been taken care of. You have been kind, and you have been generous, and you have been loving. And at times where I didn't know how something was going to work out, you, Lord, showed up, and you provided whatever was needed. And sometimes it's a text message from a friend telling me that he's been praying for me, asking me what, what, what's needed or what's going on. Like, like he's all, Lord has always done this. And what do I do? Well, I got, Lord, I don't, I don't know how it's going to work. I mean, we don't have enough money. We don't have enough resources. We, we, we cannot pull it off. Well, I talk about this in, in one of the classes I do, and we'd say, what's, we ask this question, what's the opposite of faith? And people usually say doubt, and that's the wrong answer. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Sight is the opposite of faith. What I see. I act on what I see. Faith is about unseen. What do Philip and Andrew do? They see, and they have no idea how it's going to work. They go, this isn't going to happen. This isn't going to happen, Lord. I do the same thing. Twelve and a half years. These guys have not even been to Jesus three years. I've been in ministry four times longer than they will have been with the Lord. And I'm still going, I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know. Can't work. Will it work? How will it work? How will you provide? What's going to happen? Is it uh, stress after stress after stress after stress? And sometimes it's just laughable. And so you're tempted to find a solution that doesn't first begin with surrendering to the Savior. And saying, You, Lord, you know. You know what I need. You know what you're doing. Jesus already knew what he was doing. Philip didn't. He already knew what he was doing. You know what, you, you know what you're doing. You know what I need. You know what's going to happen. I trust you. I trust you. And that is one of the hardest things for us to do, to release control of our circumstances to a gracious God Say, you can do this. So what do we see? We see the crowds who want Jesus because of his signs. We see the disciples who are talking to Jesus only in earthly ways, worldly solutions to real problems. And then we see Jesus. And what does Jesus do? My language is going to be foreshadowing what is to come, just so you know, like it's not just here. But what does Jesus do? He offers himself provides for us the bread of life. Not just, not just the bread to eat a meal, but he actually, he actually does this miracle to teach us about him and who he is for us and where our satisfaction should be and where our sustenance comes from and how we're supposed to see him and recognizing the gracious provision of God. So he takes the five loaves and the two fish in verse 11, and he had given thanks, and he distributes them to those who received it. The disciples are all sitting down in groups, and they go also with the fish, and just look at the end of verse 11, the beginning of verse 12. So also with the fish, as much as they wanted 
what was Andrew saying, or Philip saying right before this? We don't have enough money to give them a little. It would take eight months' wages to give a little. And everybody, everybody had as much as they wanted. Now, it would make sense for you to link that back to the manna that is provided over 40 years. That's what the crowds do. They link it back to the manna provided over 40 years. But we see the same kind of language where the Lord goes, gather as much as you need. If you have a big family, gather a lot. If you have a little family, gather a little. Right? You got some eaters, gather more. Whatever, gather what you need for every day. Don't have it wait over unless it's the Sabbath. Don't have it wait over, but gather what you need. You will have what you need. And each person had as much as they wanted, verse 12. And when they had their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And they, they no longer have five loaves and two fish. They have 12 basketfuls of food. Twelve. You ever heard the number 12 in the Bible ever, ever before? You ever seen the number 12? 12 shows up a few, a few times. 12s and multiples of 12s. There's 12, 12s around. 12 tribes. One. Jesus' disciples. 12, 12, 12, 12, 12. We see 12. <clears throat> There's a long history, there's a long history of looking at this and seeing the connection that Jesus is the sufficient and full Savior of Israel. That he gives everything that they need, every bit that they need. And there's something so important that we see about Jesus right here. And we've talked about this before, but we honestly don't talk about it enough. I don't talk about it enough. I doubt you talk about it enough, which is just the gracious and abundant provision of God for us. Like, he is a gracious God. And he is, like, I can't come up with the right word for it. But his generosity cannot be matched. And so there they are in a place with no resources where the disciples are going, Jesus, this will not work. And what does he do? He feeds everybody as much as they want. And there's so much left over that that poor, can you imagine the kid coming home? You're like, mom, look what I have. Like, like, that's the character of our God. And here's the thing, I, I do think sometimes we view God this way, like we're on an allowance. Where every week we go to him and we go, Lord, and he's like, okay, $5, here you go, $10, here you go, $20. Yeah, like we're on an allowance. And so he's like, well, better, not, better not use it all because I might not have any for next week. And we don't realize that God's grace does not run out. God's kindness towards us in Christ does not end. It is full. It cannot be surpassed. And we, and we don't delight. Rather, we're afraid. Maybe in, in, instead of an allowance, you can think of it this way. Maybe this is how your mind works. I have a certain number of sins I can commit a week that I will have forgiveness for. But if I cross a line... 
I will run out. And so I better be careful because God might finally look at me and say, okay, that's enough. And this, this is the dangerous argument it's made in Romans. Like, oh, so I should just keep sinning more. It's like, no, no. But I don't want a person in here who is in Christ to be afraid that God's grace towards them runs out. To be afraid that one sin is going to knock them over the edge and God's going to go, that's it, I'm done. I've warned you enough. No, what do we see? Jesus providing for the crowds. And here's the crazy thing. The crowds don't even recognize him as Messiah. So this isn't even a bait and switch where it's like, well, I'll give this to you only if he's just gracious. He's just gracious. And maybe you're here this morning and you think Jesus is a joke, but you know what? I bet your stomach's full. You got here. Your heart is beating. And you don't even recognize that that's from God. That he's gracious to those who know him salvifically. And he's gracious to those who don't in his provision. In his care. That he's always this. And then when the crowds see that, that's why they go, oh, he's the prophet. We'll make him king. But Jesus is headed to a cross. And yes, he is Lord. And his kingdom will have no end. But in his first advent, he's coming to die. And he's going to die because you and I are the people that just like Jesus for the stuff he does. And we don't even realize our need of a Savior. We don't realize just how far off we are in recognizing who he is. And we're still trying to solve Real problems, heart level, I'm a wicked person problems with veneer. Trying to just look like we have it together, act like we have it together. Maybe I could out earn or out drink or out laugh or out lust my emptiness and brokenness. And you can't. You can't. And so you're running from solution to solution to go, I'll get this right eventually, and you just need to stop and submit and surrender yourself to the Savior who is overall, who has power over all things, and provides grace in abundance. Jesus is more. He is more than the world views him as. He's more than the disciples view him as. He's more than you and I view him as. He's everything. He is everything. Sometimes when I read something like this, and you see his power, and you see his provision, and you see his authority, and you see his testing, and you see that he knew he was doing this the whole time, and I just think to myself, you know... I have to ask forgiveness of God 
God, forgive me. Forgive me for missing it, for not trusting you, for not seeing your gracious hand, for not recognizing that you are in control, for looking for an earthly solution when you're the only solution. To try and fix a problem by just cutting that fish up real thin, thinking that that's going to be what it takes. When we are totally outmatched to please God. We're totally outmatched to do what is required of us. We need his enablement. We need his provision. So I want to ask you, can you trust Jesus to forgive your sin? Can you ask that forgiveness? Can you see him as, truly see him as that gracious and good and generous provider and savior, the one who gives you what you need? As we'll read in a couple of weeks, the bread of life. The bread of life. Because that's who he is. That's what we need. And even when we get into the passage next week and the crowds are chasing him around because he fed them. And he'll even correct them for it. You only want me because you ate. And so I'm going to pray for us now that the Lord can, can correct our hearts over these coming weeks. My heart, your heart, our hearts together as a church. That this just, that this just his grace continually just teaches us, as we read in Titus, it teaches us to see him for who he is. To trust him. To recognize him as Savior. To worship him as our Lord and provider of all things. We need that. And so we'll go slowly through John 6. Because we need the constant reminder that Christ is more than we're looking for. He's more than all the things we think we need. And he provides the right solution to the real problem that is even within us, our need of a Savior.